This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McCray. Many of us see the impact of supply chain disruptions in our local stores and higher prices for agricultural inputs. But how widespread are these disruptions? What's the root cause? And when can we expect things to move back toward normal? It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, and it's brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. We're just finishing up harvest, and I recently picked the corn in our Pivot Bioproven field trap. You may remember that Pivot Bioproven adheres to the root of the corn plant. It's a microbial that creates a mutually beneficial nitrogen-generating partnership that stays strong all the way through harvest. It's weather-resistant and a sustainable way to achieve more predictable and more productive yields than ever before. So, what were our results this year? Well, our corn using Pivot Bioproven out-yielded the non-treated corn by 7 bushels per acre, and that's the second year in a row we saw a yield boost. Even more exciting, though, is the opportunity to replace some of our synthetic nitrogen since Pivot Bioproven can be a proven source of nitrogen throughout the growing season. That's a big factor, especially in this time of much higher input prices. I'll continue to share more results throughout the harvest season, and you can learn more about Pivot Bioproven and field trials throughout the nation by going to pivotbio.com. Mike Steenhook is the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. That title implies, of course, that he works on soybean issues, which he does. But his knowledge of the ag industry is broad, and he's a good source to discuss supply chain issues, both domestically and globally, and how transportation challenges continue to be obstacles for agriculture and business, even outside of a pandemic. Our discussion is a bit of cause and effect, problem and solution, both in the present and looking to the future. Here's our conversation. Mike Steenhook, who's the executive director of the Soybean Transportation Coalition, joins me. And Mike, I appreciate the chance to visit. Why don't you just tell people a little bit about what that uh, group does that you work for? Because I know you cover a lot of ground when it comes to the, the agriculture side of things. Well, there's a there has been an increasing realization among farmers, and this really has been, a, been percolating for a number of years, that uh, – to be profitable, it's not just a, a function of growing a, a sufficient crop, and it's not just a function of having demand for that crop. It's, it's also very much a function of being able to connect the two, supply with demand. Um, and it's particularly acute for soybean farmers. When you, when you look at a field of soybeans, you can assume that over half of what you're looking at will be consumed outside the United States. And if that's your reality as an industry, then you need to make sure that you get transportation right. And so much of your profitability can wax or wane based on how, based on the quality or lack thereof of our multimodal transportation system. So farmers decided to get together and collaborate in creating this organization called the Soy Transportation Coalition. And as our name suggests, we focus on those transportation issues that are germane to you know, Midwestern agriculture in general, but the soybean industry in particular. So you'll find me working on a rural road and bridge issue one day, or and it certainly can extend to a high, highways and interstates, our freight rail system, our inland waterways, as well as our ports. So 
when you when you really follow the uh, a soybean from the farm to its ultimate destination, it'll routinely touch on uh, each of those links in, in our supply chain. So it's an important for us to be really committed uh, to helping improve that system. I certainly want to cover as much, as much ground as we can in our time together. And we'll talk about some things that are definitely related to COVID supply chain issues. But I'd like to talk also about things that, you know, COVID probably didn't touch just in general about transportation. But let's let's go to the topic that most people see. And that's we have a backlog of things. I'm interested, though, how much of the supply chain issues are affecting agriculture right now when we see those ships that are backed up different places what is that doing to agricultural exports and imports? Because you're somebody there that, that deals with that in a sense all the time. Yeah, I mean, we, we see on the news a lot these these very compelling visuals of these large ocean vessels. They're full of containers, uh, could be 10,000, even up to 20,000 uh, containers you know, per vessel, these, these large vessels. And that mainly impacts the freight that is transported by containers. So these 20-foot or 40-foot and long steel boxes that you see that can be put on an ocean vessel, and then they, they're called intermodal containers, which means they can be transferred from one mode of transportation to another. So from ocean vessels to freight rail to a truck chassis, um, it's interchangeable through these various modes. And it, it, soybeans are not predominantly exported via container. They're primarily exported in a bulk fashion, which means they're just basically loosely uh, conveyed into a, a, an ocean vessel, a, a hull of an ocean ship, or it could be a, a rail car or obviously in a truck, which a lot of farmers are familiar with. Um, but there is some degree of, of exports that do occur via containers. And you know that that backlog that we're seeing very pronounced is is really having a negative impact on those uh, on those soybean exporters via container and it's having an impact on other agricultural entities that utilize containers like our friends in the meat industry um most of that export most of those exports occur in containers where they're refrigerated or even frozen um and then a host of other agricultural industries are really being adversely affected by that. But, you know, the, the broader supply chain challenges, it's not just limited to containers. It, it really is impacting all of the various modes of transportation. Um, that, con that, those, that container backlog is just perhaps the most visual uh, example of that. But, uh, you know, one of the things that really are, it's confronting supply chain issues here in the United States, you know, arguably preeminently, the preeminent culprit is a, is a lack of labor. And for if you're a, a company that needs to hire truck drivers, or if you're a barge company that needs to have workers on your for your barges, you're really competing against some of these other industries that also are having a hard time fulfilling their labor needs. But those other industries like construction or distribution centers or retail or food service, that does not involve being away from home. Um, whereas being a truck driver or working on a, for a rail company or a barge company, it often does involve being away from home. So a lot of these, these links in our supply chain that are responsible for transporting soybeans and other commodities are really struggling with finding adequate labor, which when that, when that occurs, it puts upward pressure on, on logistics and erodes some of our profitability. So it clearly is an issue. 
give me an idea of the the global scope because certainly we see things here and perhaps i go to my local store and i don't see as many things on the shelf or something i want's not there and so we tend to make that very local which it is but is this something that is basically global so everybody is experiencing something like this there are labor shortage around the world and so that just goes into this problem that we experience here because it's being experienced everywhere or how isolated is the supply chain problem or is it it is it is uh in existence throughout the the world and you know there's been occasions where the the backlog of ships waiting for uh, a berth uh to to be loaded or unloaded at a at a port is more significant uh elongated at some of these international ports versus US ports um you know China's had some real struggles uh throughout the course of the the last year and a half um and what's happened at times is you'll have a, a a disruption. It could be it could be pandemic related, where you all of a sudden some of your longshoremen, your port workers, will test positive for COVID nineteen, and then all of a sudden you know the Chinese government or the the the, the, the lo- or even the local authorities will put a stop on operations at that port, and that all of a sudden creates this significant backlog. Um, it could be weather-induced where you have a, a, a hurricane, whether it's here in the United States or it could be elsewhere, where all of a sudden it limits the ability to to move freight in and out of that port facility. So it is it, it is something that is manifest uh, throughout the world. I, I would say one thing that is unique about the United States is, you know, Every country has responded to COVID, the COVID pandemic differently. One of the things that's been significant here in the United States is the amount of stimulus money that has been pumped in to the economy, both last year in 2020 and also in 2021. And what that has done is it it is all of a sudden put additional stress on and demand on manufactured products uh, because all of that consumer spending has uh, it's been on the increase the the amount of consumer spending but then in addition to that and perhaps more profoundly it's moved away from services and into goods almost exclusively into goods and so all of a sudden that's put an extreme amount of stress in the manufacturing that serves the u.s economy and as well so therefore on the supply chain that accommodates that freight moving from places like china to the united states so it, it it's something that yes it is in other countries but we we do have you know a particular occurrence of this supply chain stress um largely due to how consumers have been spending over the last oh, year and a half almost two years now you may not have a good answer to this because it'd be a bit speculative, but given the demand that we have right now for goods, how well would we have been able to cope with this if we didn't have the effects of COVID? Because you mentioned, is this demand somewhat unprecedented, the amount of demand that we see for some goods to get it through a supply chain in, in regular times? Yeah, I mean, well, you don't build you know this this infrastructure because it's very expensive. Whether it's ocean vessels or cranes at ports or rail cars or rail track, all of these things are very expensive. So you don't want to you know build too much of it unless you're sure you've got the the demand uh, that's going to follow it. Um, so when all of a sudden we had that unexpected shift and dramatic shift away from you know services spending on services into goods, um, you know, there's, there, 
if you do your supply chain right, you shouldn't have a lot of pad room because that's that's very expensive and sometimes that can be an unnecessary expense. So, um, but you know, the supply chain had to respond to it. I, you know, in many cases, you you have to almost you know applaud the fact that there were with all of the unprecedented stress on the supply chain. It's 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 actually we still have a lot of goods coming into this United States. We're still able to be able to purchase a lot of the things that we want. Clearly, it's not up to not up to our expectations. That's that's a definite. That's an obvious point. But it has been tasked to do a lot, and and it has done a lot. So that's you know moving forward. That's the 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 real big question is you know when is this going to start to abate? When will we finally catch up? Um, I don't anticipate uh, really the the situation changing until well into 2022. I think this is going to be with us throughout the course of this year and and obviously into next year. So um, you know I wish there was a silver bullet uh, to this um, and, and a magic wand, but you know clearly there isn't. So it's something that um, we're we're obviously going to be existing with for for a period of time. Well, you mentioned that, of course, we would love to have a silver bullet and make everything right again. But is there much that can be done except time? And we don't necessarily love that answer. But is there more that we should be doing now, whether it's in the agricultural sector or just as a country as a whole or even globally, that would help this ease faster? Or is time the only thing that heals it? That's that's going to be the major one, uh, time. But, you know, I, I think it's 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 clearly a uh an opportune uh moment to to really start asking ourselves some questions as a you know at a federal level at a state level at a local level are there investments that need to be made that can you know shore up the system are there opportunities to do a better job of preventative maintenance um and make sure you're building more resilience resiliency into the system? And are there regulations that are hamstringing our ability to move freight as efficiently as possible? And I think there's a lot of those uh, in, a, in their isolation, it's not going to solve the problem. And, and when you aggregate them as well, it may not solve the problem either. But I think you know it's always a good time to have these conversations. It's particularly a good time to have them now. But you know, I think, you know, for example, you know, we could do a lot more in this country with improving the efficiency of truck movement if we were to allow heavier semis to operate on our on our interstate system and in a lot of states as well if you had an additional axle um under the under the trailer so you're able to transport more but you're not having a negative impact on infrastructure wear and tear because that additional axle spreads out the weight more and so the imprint on the road or bridge is is the same or or less than a current common 18 wheeler that you see on our on our roads and then with that additional axle you're you're increasing the braking capacity of that of that semi so that stopping distance or distances won't be compromised so there are ways of increasing efficiency without compromising safety um, or imposing more damage on the infrastructure you know that's just one example related to the trucking industry and there there's examples of that throughout the, the the various industries so we need to be very open and focused on those opportunities and it's not again it's not a magic wand but any opportunity to provide some degree of relief um at the margins 
that's something that we should be very much pursuing and, and trying to see implemented. I suppose, as you mentioned, some of it could be regulatory, some of it could be lawmaking, and we certainly hear about the infrastructure bills that are being debated and worked on right now. How do you feel about what is being proposed? Is that going to get at the heart of some of what we're doing? How much does it help, or is it too early to know what we might be able to do with some of those those bills? Yeah, it, the, the the infrastructure bill proposes to you know basically double what we spend on at a federal level on infrastructure, um, you know, over a roughly a ten year period of time. Um, that's something that you know we're certainly hopeful that something can get passed. It will provide some additional resources to roads and bridges, including uh, some some of the inventory in rural America, uh, which is something that we we've been advocating for for a long time. Um, there's funding identified for ports and inland waterways, which that's something that's very important to us as well. So we're very hopeful that something, you know, can and can certainly be done, you know, at the federal level. I There's been more attention on supply chain and infrastructure um, this year than I've witnessed for many years. And it's not just the congestion <clears throat> that we've, that we continue to see, but, you know, things like, you know, we had a bridge that had to be closed uh, on Interstate 40 connecting Memphis, Tennessee. All of a sudden, that created a, a real disruption throughout the country. We had a, a ship get lodged in the at the Suez Canal. We had a cyber attack on a on a pipeline uh, distribution network, and we had Hurricane Ida that impacted the Gulf of Mexico. So, a lot of these things, these disruptions, people are are understanding. Sometimes it could be a weather event. Sometimes it could be a criminal event. Sometimes it could be just simple negligence. But there, there could be pandemic related. But what a lot of Americans are realizing and appreciating more and more is there are certain kind of critical junctures within our supply chain, and if something were to go awry there, it could really have a seismic impact on the rest of the economy. So. Here, Congress is debating a strategy for improving our infrastructure. It just seems like this is a real opportune time to not allow politics to get in the way and actually to get something done. And we hope they embrace this opportunity. Do you feel like that, you know, those core issues, you're talking about roads and bridges and waterways and so forth. Is there enough bipartisan support? Do you think that we will get something done? I know we have the, the larger bill and so forth, and that can be more partisan, but how do you feel at this point on our chances of being able to get some of those things done that could help agriculture? I, I think there's a, a, a real good chance that something does get done. I, I just have a hard time believing that you know, Congress will fail to actually advance a, an infrastructure bill with all of the all of the time and energy that they've devoted to it, as much of a priority as it is for Republicans and Democrats. You know, certainly President Biden, it's a priority for him. So it'd be really hard for me to envision they don't actually get this done. It would really be a kind of a blight on on uh, our leadership if if that doesn't happen. Uh, you know, the challenge still remains is um, to what extent does the does the more controversial reconciliation bill uh, in the House get linked with the infrastructure bill, which is much less controversial, where there's much more bipartisan support for. And, you know, if it, if it was, if the bipartisan 
infrastructure bill was was submitted in in isolation, I have full confidence that you would see it passed. But the the fact that it's being tethered to this more controversial piece of legislation, that's where the the challenge really is. So we're we're obviously hopeful that they actually get something done on the infrastructure bill. You know, my suggestion and certainly my hope is that they do it in isolation, the infrastructure bill, rather than in conjunction with that more controversial bill. Uh, and and once they get the infrastructure bill passed, then certainly they can debate the other you know, provisions of the, the reconciliation bill, and may they do so. Um, and, you know, if, if it indeed has merit. So uh, that's something that we would certainly hope for. But obviously, you know, Congress has many of those in Congress have a different perspective. In the time that we have left here, give us an idea for, you know, our farmers that are listening here. We're all worried about inputs, I think, and prices and so forth. Do you feel like that uh, this year then we probably live with some of these higher input prices? And then on the other side, how does that impact perhaps the price that we can receive for corn, beans, wheat, other crops, livestock? What is going to happen to this whole price structure, I guess, as we move through the next few months, do you think? Yeah, I mean the 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 price of the inputs. It's obviously a function of a lot of different things. Um, you know, infrastructure and supply chain is one of those components of it. Um, certainly, it's helping increase the the cost of those of, of inputs like fertilizer. So, you know, that's obviously a <clears throat> a real concern for farmers. You know, the you, you know the farmers have appreciated a rebound in 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 prices uh, for their commodities, but then, you know. Often seems like it it gets um, wedded to a uh, a cost increase for an important input, and we're certainly seeing that with uh, fertilizer and other other areas. So, yeah, it's it's uh, obviously it's it's a it's a challenge moving forward, and you know farmers are really going to have to you know really put some serious you know continue to put some serious pen, pencil to paper to really figure out what's the plan that works best for them. <clears throat> Give me an idea of what are the key things that the Soy Transportation Coalition is looking at here over the next month or two. Uh, I know you have a lot of things on the plate, but what are the key things that you're uh, looking at here over the next couple of months? Yeah, the, we would love to see some <clears throat> continued movement on locks and dams. You know, there's some a, a number of lock projects that are on the Upper Mississippi River that agriculture has you know long advocated for, and we would love to see some final movement on it um you know in the in the foreseeable future you know we we work a lot on issues related to rural roads and bridges so you know we you know advocate for um you know more funding for rural roads and bridges but then you know more economical ways of replacing these rural bridges we have a project that right now that highlights ways to ways to replace a rural bridge which can often cost a half million dollars eight hundred thousand dollars but there's ways to replace the some of these bridges for a fraction of that cost for one hundred thousand dollars for two hundred thousand dollars without compromising safety that's a project that's a real big priority of ours because you know while we advocate for more resources from the federal state and local governments our conclusion is that there will never be enough money from from government to meet all of our transportation needs. So what that tells us is we can't just focus on revenue. We also have to focus on streamlining and limiting costs. We have to look at that side of the equation as well. So we we talk a lot about ways to make the taxpayer dollar stretch further so that you're preserving these rural roads and bridges that serve as that initial 
artery from the farm to the delivery location. Mike, I appreciate the time. We'll hope that uh, we continue to see some of these issues work themselves out. However, that's going to happen here over time. I'm sure you're hoping that too. Hey, it's always good to be with you, Andrew. And and yes, yeah, certainly we'll we'll continue to be put it, pushing uh, foot to the pedal on on this, and hopefully we'll be able to get some meaningful things done on behalf of farmers. No doubt, we'll continue to see supply chain issues for a while, and the impacts from COVID are global. There are still transportation priorities for agriculture, even without a pandemic, though. So it will be interesting to continue to follow Mike's work and how those challenges are abated over time. I appreciate you joining us on your local radio station or via the podcast. Remember, you can catch past shows at farmingthecountryside.com, and you can catch our daily program, American Countryside, on many of these same stations or at americancountryside.com or following American Countryside on Facebook. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com.